In May 2014, the Land Reform Review Group, commissioned by the Scottish Government, submitted a report containing 62 recommendations for land reform in Scotland. 58 of the 62 recommendations fall within the Scottish Government's existing pre-independence referendum powers. To find out more about land reform and the Review Group's recommendations, we spoke with Andy Whiteman, author of The Poor Had No Lawyers, Hugh Raven, Managing Director of the Ardtornish Estate in Morvern, and Ailey Ross, Solicitor at Inkster's Solicitors. I started by asking Andy Whiteman what the phrase land reform means to him. Well, to me, land reform means changing the relationship between land and people, uh, in short, basically changing the legal, the political, the fiscal arrangements that govern the relationship between people and, and land. And can you please provide an overview of the Land Reform Review Group's report? Um, it's pretty comprehensive. It covers the whole of land in Scotland, urban, rural, marine. Uh, it goes into some detail and has 62 recommendations for for action, all of which, in my view anyway, are pretty common sense uh, and uncontroversial. Of course, the landed class have been um, very anxious about this. They, they think it's um, not good at all, uh, an attack on their rights and all the rest of it. Uh, part of the debate we're having really is simply a reflection that we haven't had an ongoing discussion about land reform over the decades. You know, this is still all unfinished business. Hence, you've got vested interests. You still don't recognise the fact that land should be held for the common good of the people of Scotland. And it's no coincidence that the report's called the land of Scotland and the common good. This idea that, you know, we have a finite land resource. It's for the common good of all the people. Therefore, let's work out how we're going to structure the relationships of that land such that it delivers for the common good in, in the public interest. And, you know, weighed against that, you have a relatively small number of people who own most of rural Scotland anyway, who are saying, well, this is this is my land and, and we're fine and we're creating lots of jobs, all of which is, you know, true in, 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 in large part, but doesn't get to the substance of the issue, which is to do with power and who really makes decisions. So, I mean, this report could set the agenda for an ongoing programme of land reform over the next five, ten years that genuinely and truly uh, recalibrates that relationship and redistributes power. It's easily forgotten that land reform is as important to urban areas as it is to rural ones. However, rural areas retain a focus as that's where the effects of the unreformed land holding system are most obvious, particularly underpopulated highland estates. I asked Hugh Raven, our Tornish Estate Managing Director, whether he thought there was any need for land reform at all. I think there is a feeling in Scotland that land is an issue that remains to be debated and addressed. So I think from a, a democratic point of view, uh, I don't think there's any doubt that there's a, a very vigorous debate about land reform. It gives rise to a number of questions, uh, all of which we'll all have our own opinions on, about um, distribution of wealth and um, and access to natural resources, which I think makes it a perfectly legitimate subject for debate. So do I think there's a need for land reform? I think in some respects there is, yes. The question is, can we move to a more benign system of land management that is avowedly in the public interest without throwing babies out with bathwater? And that's perhaps the detail of the conversation that we need to get into. To what extent do you think the, the pattern of large Highland Estates is consistent with the public interest? I think it can be. I also would be very interested to know whether the statistics that one sees are actually founded in in fact. I'm not saying that they're not, but um, you often see it's 
said that Scotland is a country with the most uneven land ownership distribution in Europe or the world. I've never seen that authoritatively backed up. Now, it may be true, but um, I don't know whether it's the case. It's certainly the case that the pattern of land ownership in Scotland is, is very traditional. <clears throat> and what's happening elsewhere in the economy, as we all know, is that wealth is aggregating in the hands of a smaller group than historically. In other words, the distribution of wealth is uneven and more so than it was when I was a child, certainly. And uh, the distribution of land ownership is also very uneven. The debate is about whether that's in the public interest, and I think it can be in the public interest. And um, the question is, can the land reform debate make it more so? Um, I think the land reform debate is also, <clears throat> it, it does well to consider the multiplicity of land ownership in Scotland, uh, which is a complicated way of saying that there are many different types of landowner, and it's by no means only private estates that need to be examined in this context. And uh, as you and I both know, over the course of the last decade, uh, the biggest single change probably has been the increase in community ownership. And so far, that seems to be a thoroughly good thing. But let's wait and see how that develops over time as well. Have you had an opportunity to read the Land Reform Review Group report? I haven't read it all because, as you'll know, it's a couple of hundred pages. But I've read I've read bits of it and I shall be um, studying it in more detail in the coming weeks. Just on a, a kind of general level in respect of the bits you've, you've read so far, what did you think of it? I thought it was very balanced and very measured. And I think that it will certainly enable and engender an interesting debate about the future of land ownership in Scotland. I thought perhaps in some respects actually it was possibly a little bit timid because it recommended more work here, there and everywhere. So there was lots of more work needing done and it did very helpfully signpost those areas that needed more work. But so far as I could see at least, it didn't come up with any really hard recommendations about change that was needed immediately and perhaps that's a good thing. But I would just comment that I thought maybe it would have a little more... Uh, definitude than in fact it has. Can you give me any examples? Um, well, I would say if you look at all the recommendations, they seem, I, 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 well, I should caveat this by saying that I say I've, I've, I've read bits but not all, but the recommendations seem to be couched mainly in terms of requiring more work. And in that respect, perhaps the best example is the one that's caught most people's eye, which is the establishment, recommending the establishment of the commission. And that of itself may well be a very good thing. It seems to have been well received. But uh, but the commission, establishing a commission changes nothing. And so while I can see the point of it, uh, it's a recommendation for more work. It's not a recommendation for immediate activity. I have some of the specific recommendations. first recommendation I wanted to ask you about was the limit on the area of land that can be owned by one person. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think as so often with these things, I fear it will end up being a lawyer's charter because, of course, there are many ways of getting around uh, limits of that kind. I also don't know how consistent it is with, the, um, it may be curious to mention it in this context, but the human rights uh, legislation that we're all bound by, or the conventions at least. Um, uh, and I'd want to know what the purpose of that was because if it could be shown that a single individual owner such as for example the forestry commission or a community organization just as much as a private individual was owning the land in the public interest and i can't see why one would want to do that so i think that begs more questions than it answers really another recommendation regarding community right to register an interest in land that that really already exists i suppose have there been any discussions regarding community purchase in our Tornish, and if not, how would you respond to such a, a request? There have 
been historically there have been um, mentions of it and some time ago there was uh, an intention to register a community interest in at least certain bits of Antonish's estate I think um, and in the end that didn't happen um, and the reason I say it didn't happen is because we would have been notified of it both by the local community and um, as you know under the process that exists as a requirement to notify the, the organisation owning the land and I would certainly be interested in discussions locally if there were key land assets that arresting or retarding the development of the local community and the local economy uh, in how we could make those available whether that's by transfer of ownership or lease is a, a moot point but one would need to look at each on its individual merits and uh, locally there are, are some key assets that land assets that Antonish owns that are at the disposal of the local community so one would hope to find a route through that that was beneficial to all parties <clears throat> but that i'm perhaps getting slightly off the subject the, the, the point being the registration of an interest i mean it seems to me that uh, that's a, an entirely benign process and the communities concerned that need to have a way of expressing an interest in pieces of land that they perceive to be important to their development another recommendation was the the registration of all titles in scotland and i think you were suggesting earlier it's, it's not necessarily provable, you know, some of the statistics that are bandied around. Would you register all your titles in the land register, say, on a, a voluntary registration basis? I can't see any argument against that. So the answer to that will be yes. The problem we have, and we are aware that we need to streamline this, is that title in many respects is very complicated. And for us to um, uh, show the title to the land that the Autonomous Estate Company owns, would require several box files, and it would be much easier if it required a bit of digital mapping with a little accompanying text. So that's a process that we need to go through. But uh, yes, I can't see any reason why the ownership of land shouldn't be uh, publicly disclosable. Hugh Raven raised the issue of human rights regarding the recommendation of a limit on the area of land any one individual can own. This is a reference to the European Convention on Human Rights, an international treaty drafted and signed in the aftermath of World War II and separate from the European Union. People might smile at the thought of landowners who own thousands of acres having their human rights infringed by an upper limit on how much they can own, but it does seem that if this recommendation were to be enacted by the Scottish Government, it would be one of the more eye-catching and potentially require clarification in the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. I asked Andy Whiteman if the human rights of landowners specifically the ones who own very large amounts of land, could be affected by this recommendation? Uh, they could, potentially, yes. Um, Article 1 of Protocol 1 of the European Convention of Human Rights basically um, protects property rights. But the, the important thing about it is it, it says, that, um, says that every natural or legal person that's a company is entitled to the peaceful enjoyment of their possessions and no one shall be deprived of their possessions except in the public interest and subject to the conditions provided by by law. And it goes on to say that these provisions shall not, however, in any way impair the right of the state to enforce such laws as it deems necessary to control the use of property in accordance with the general interest or to secure the payment of taxes or other contributions or penalties. So it basically says that if you own property, that is a, a human right, but, uh, and no one shall take it away from you, except in the public interest and subject to the conditions of law. So the public interest, of course, is a very widely uh, defined uh, and interpreted phrase. Obviously, it means that if you want to build a new railway or a new bridge or whatever, then compulsory purchase powers have been around for a long time and they're perfectly 
um, acceptable. And in England, where they um, starting back in the 70s or 80s, I think they started to do leasehold enfranchisement. They have a leasehold freehold system and certain categories of leaseholders, people who were owning houses on long leases, 100, 200 years, were allowed to buy out the freehold. And the Duke of Westminster, in fact, uh, went all the way to the European court. And ultimately, you know, he lost because the, the court ruled that this was in the public interest. There was a legal framework that was coherent. There was an appeals process. There was compensation available and, and all the rest of it. So actually, the latitude for the state to deprive people of their possessions in the public interest is quite well established. So this is not an absolute protection. It's also important in human rights terms to emphasize as well, there are other human rights, there are economic and social and cultural rights in UN conventions, a right to adequate housing, for example. That's a human right that people have to have adequate housing. So human rights is really important, but it's not an obstacle to land reform by, by, by no means. Often human rights are thrown up as a means of suggesting that it's not possible to do any land reform. In fact, it's, it's, it's not a great impediment at all. So it might be that individuals or companies with very large land holdings extending to many thousands of acres might claim that an upper limit on the area of land they can own is an infringement of their human rights. However, human rights are a two-way street, and it might be that the Scottish courts, followed by the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, are asked to decide upon this issue in which case it can be imagined that a set of criteria will be developed by those courts which, if they are all satisfied, will lead to a decision in favour of the limit being applied in an individual case. Only time will tell how this issue will be resolved. Anyway, back to Andy Whiteman discussing some more of the recommendations. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff around communities. So they tackle that and they basically say that communities have got a number of different interests in land relating to just wanting to know you know, if and when land has been sold and who the owner is, uh, to registering an interest such that they have a preemptive right to buy if it ever becomes sold, you know, right through to the right to request that a local authority can use compulsory purchase powers to acquire land that a community needs for very necessary purposes. What's so great about uh, community? Why should communities own land and how do you define community? I mean, a, a community is basically, uh, can be a community of interest. A number of people have shared interests, fishermen or crofters or whatever, um, or it can be a community of place, people who live in a, in a place. And if you travel through continental Europe, um, in Belgium and France and Scandinavia, um, you'll encounter a relatively small scale local government, municipalities and communes, etc which have substantial powers, uh, legal statutory powers, deliver services and raise taxes at quite a local level. Uh, they also um, own own land. It's typical in, in France and Belgium, Norway and places. Um, local communes will sell you a housing plot. They, they have plots available for sale. So actually, in most of continental Europe, communities have been defined in statutory terms for a long time as a very local form of local government. We have 32 um, local authorities in Scotland, but they're the biggest in Europe. They cover the largest areas and the greatest numbers of people. So a typical commune or municipality of continental Europe is 5 to 10, 12,000 people. So when we look at community, community rights, you know, we think this is something kind of novel. I mean, it's very, very common in the rest of Europe. It's just that we haven't enshrined it in any kind of statute. It's a, very, it's a voluntary system. If communities want to get off their backsides and do something, then powers available 
to them to do that and there'll be a community empowerment bill being put to parliament next next month but the important thing about communities is we all or most of us live in a community uh, and life much of life uh, revolves around the the daily interaction of, of, of communities schools primary health care uh, housing social activities the pub shopping services that kind of thing and if you want to have good strong vibrant communities it's really important they've got the power to intervene and, and and deal with the things they need to do to ensure that they have a a, a sustainable uh, community. I mean, if they have no power or they're reliant on power at a great distance, you know, communities can 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 wither and die. And and what's happened in some parts of the more fragile areas of Scotland with the land situation, of course, is the uh, large estates have been held by absentee landowners who buy and sell them like trinkets, and many of these places have been run down. And people have begun to to emigrate, and housing's not been kept up to scratch, uh, etc. And they have essentially for themselves decided, right, enough's enough. We're just going to buy it and own it ourselves. Uh, that's been the sort of the community buyout movement of the last 20 years. The focus on community has been like the focus on on rural and the highlands has been one of the things that's tended to suggest that land reform is only for kind of rural areas and tenant farmers and, and communities, etc. Actually, in this report, there's an awful lot about you know compulsory purchase about inheritance about registration of land about urban land derelict land etc which brings land reform and the importance of land and new relationships in, in land you know right into the heart of our cities affecting lots more people so how would you characterize the report then characterize it as modernizing land tenure um so land registration and inheritance law etc giving greater powers and opportunities to individuals and communities to get to have a greater stake in in, in land and running through it uh, a focus on the on the public interest. What is the public interest in in land and how it should be used, and and using that essentially as the yardstick for developing policy. So, for example, on on wild animals, on on, on deer and hunting, for example, they're a public resource. They're not privately owned. They're wild animals, and yet uh, traditionally they've been managed by private interests. So argues that that should be uh, managed like any other common resource, public resource in the public interest and that may mean that um, traditional hunting estates um, you know have to change um, so the public interest is a strong theme running through all of this and ultimately yeah all these recommendations are about making sure that we use land in scotland you know in the interests of all the people in scotland and not exclusively or not in in, in any uh, kind of priority for for, for those who are, are lucky enough fortunate enough to to own it in the first place there's a recommendation to accelerate the process of registering titles in the land register. This is the 21st century. Surely we already have a fully map-based, computerised land register. Uh, well, no, we don't. And um, in fact, this is one of the first responses the Scottish government's given to this report is to announce that it's going to look at ways of ensuring the land register is complete within 10 years. I mentioned the register of Sasians earlier, uh, established in 1617. Most land in Scotland, indeed virtually all land in Scotland, is in a register of property ownership of some sort. The register of Sasians is a register of, 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 of deeds, of bits of paper. It doesn't actually have maps. Um, and the, the keeper of the registers, who, who is the official that is responsible for maintaining this register, doesn't actually say anything about who owns what in those deeds. It's up to you to look at those deeds and interpret them as you will, which is why when you buy and sell houses, you have to do a search and make sure that uh, 
if you're selling a house to me that um, I need to make sure that in fact you actually own that house to make sure of the, of the exactly what it is that you purport to own and that means going through these these deeds. Now that's a, that's a very inefficient process in a country where lots more people own property than they did in 1617. So in 1979 they introduced the land register as a separate register and really that uh, was designed such that uh, when you bought and sold property um, the property would then move on to this new land register and the keeper would issue a land certificate which would be a guarantee. There'd been, it, she would actually indemnify uh, the property as well against any defects that were subsequently found um, and it would be mapped and, and it would state clearly that this property within these red lines is yours and there'd be no need to you know every time you sell it to go through this process of searching and interpreting old deeds. Now that new land register which is a modern system has been in place since 1981 it became operational and uh, but it's proceeded quite slowly so although at the moment about 60 percent of titles are, are on it um, that's only about 20 seven or so percent of the land area because most of the titles that are on it are urban properties, flats, houses and things and not the large areas of, of land. So one of the recommendations is to speed this up so that we know who owns every where inch of the country. Who could possibly object to complete transparency on uh, ownership of every inch of the country? Uh, well, no one should. I mean, it, but the point is this is not the only recommendation that it makes on transparency and ownership. I mean, it also talks about essentially creating a kind of a non-definitive database as well, not so much a rough and ready one, but um, something that just tells you who owns most of the country, but not a legal, not in any legal sense. The problem with completing the land register is trying to interpret old titles and put them on a land register is a time-consuming and, and quite expensive process. And the registers of Scotland who are responsible for it are a self-funding agency. They get no taxpayers' money. They just earn the money through fees that are charged to people who buy property uh, and out of that they have to pay the costs of investigating these titles and issuing these certificates so if you want to extend that or, or speed it up there's a whole resource question there now in fact most questions that people have about land are who owns that field and how can I get in touch with them you know I want to put a water pipe or I want to investigate leasing a bit of land to graze my horses next year or whatever so and what you get in most continental Europe is you get a separate system of land ownership records which are what are called cadastral records they're basically the local land records that delineate on a map who owns what in order that local municipalities can charge taxes and that gives you the essential information on who owns what and that's open to for inspection uh, for anybody in the, and in the modern day and computers uh, available uh, online and so we, we, we can advance both these things if there's sufficient political will uh, and indeed resources the other thing of course to say about this is that it's important that any database or a register of ownership should reveal who really owns it and we've got a lot of land that's owned in in trusts and uh, offshore companies in the British Virgin Islands and Grand Cayman and places um, and it's very difficult to know who really is behind Hanky Panky Properties Limited in, in, because Grand Cayman Registry doesn't allow you to look at who the members and directors are. Um, so there's a recommendation here that, in fact, uh, we shouldn't allow uh, any registration of land uh, held in a, in, a, in a tax haven and that should all be in the name of a company registered in the European Union. And that's, of course, a legal requirement because the Treaty of Rome says that we've got freedom of movement in, in Europe. So Germans, Italians are perfectly free to buy property here. So we couldn't 
we can prohibit them in any way, but we can insist that if you're going to register the title, which is an important part of owning property, if you don't register it, you don't have such a good claim on it, um, to insist that it be done uh, either by a natural person or you know, a proper person in their individual name or if it's in a corporate entity. And that would improve transparency uh, as to who owns what. You know, a lot of the, the debate that around this that happens, I notice especially on Twitter, can get a little bit heated on the, on the part sometimes of, of the kind of supporting industry of these landowners. We're talking about uh, large or secretive landowners, but they they subsidise a whole range of advisors, lawyers, accountants, rural surveyors, that kind of thing. And there seems to be considerable resistance from them as well towards land reform. Yes, there's, there's, there's a lot of ingrained conservatism and there's a lot of basically defence of existing elites and power structures. I mean, none of that's terribly surprising because most most elites don't like their power to be to be challenged. And the the kind of agencies you're talking about, lawyers and uh, state agents and surveyors and people, of course, they they earn their living from servicing the needs of these elites, so they feel threatened as well. And when you you know when you build or move towards a country where you have more people owning land, they tend to do do their own thing. They don't need estate agents and surveyors and factors and lawyers and accountants and stuff. I mean, I don't have any of these things. I just do my own accounts and, <laughs> and all the rest of it. So, so yes, they feel they feel threatened. And in fact, you know, some of the rhetoric is is a little bit overblown. Again, it's a measure of the fact that this debate is still quite immature. And, you know, for decades it's been, you know, it's been suppressed, these issues. But, you know, the landowner's press release last week said uh, the report appears to be based on a bias against private land ownership. It's not. I mean, the first element of the remit is to increase the number of people with a stake in land. That means that you want more private owners. But, of course, what they're really saying is that it appears to be biased against their members, the people who currently own it. Um, so there's a lot of really, really interesting politics um, and a lot of interesting kind of cultural baggage uh, out there. And um, you're right. I mean, the debate can be quite heated because this arouses strong passions amongst people. Uh, I think what's important about this report, though, is it gives, um, uh, you know, it sets a new agenda for moving for moving forward where we can have hopefully a sort of rational discussion uh, as to you know how to implement some of these recommendations, and frankly, if there is political support, broadly speaking, for these recommendations, then they will happen. Do you think there is political support? Well, the Scottish government has, uh, has said that it's broadly happy with what it calls the direction of travel, <laughs> which you know it should be. It set the remit. So I think we now have crossed um, a bit of a threshold, in a sense that there is a consensus that we need a fairer, more equitable distribution of land. Uh, should be more transparent, more accountable, and land relations uh, in 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 um, in total should be structured in such a way that they deliver for the public interest. So this is quite a groundbreaking report because it goes into what I call the you know the archaeology, the kind of plumbing of the, the underlying principles. And uh, I think most politicians, once they have the chance to, to digest this, will broadly support it. Then it's a question of um, arguing about the detail and how many of these recommendations are 
are implemented. And that's where it gets difficult and that's where you require quite a bit of political resolve because, you know, reforms of this nature can be quite easily uh, derailed. There's going to have to be uh, pressure brought to bear on Parliament and government to maintain focus on this topic. And it's interesting that the last recommendation, in fact, talks about setting up a Scottish Land and Property Commission, which would have responsibility for monitoring the system governing the ownership and management of land and keeping it all under review. And that's quite important because, you know, the first tranche of land reform in the first parliament, 1999 to 2003, um, was quite quite comprehensive. Um, But the report that preceded that, that uh, Lord Sewell chaired, I mean, he said that it's important to recognise that these reforms are not the last word and this is an ongoing process. So it's important not to drop the ball on this and to keep it under review so that we don't end up in future with a situation where we have, you know, relationships and structures that really aren't aren't working. A number of things that this report doesn't touch on. I mean, last year I was involved with quite a lot of people in trying to open up membership of charities um, that own land, the Apple Cross Trust, the Isle of Butte, Mount Stewart Trust. These were charities that were set up by the Marquis of Butte and the Wills Tobacco family to obtain control over these estates, um, but within a charity which their family members run. Um, so we, 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 we uh, 100 of us applied for membership of these. Of course, they rejected it. But in my view, it's not acceptable that, you know, 89% of the Isle of Butte is owned by a charity that no one in Butte can join. So, you know, that's not addressed. There's a lot of other things that aren't addressed. And that's why having some kind of standing commission that can keep an eye on these things and monitor and issue an annual report, commission bits of research, keep this in the public eye, keep this on the public agenda. It's probably one of the most important recommendations in the whole report. If you were... Uh kind of a a gambling man to what extent do you see these uh, recommendations being implemented and how in what sort of time scale well i think it'll take time um i mean as i say this is a topic that has been around for a long time not dealt with it's these are some some of these are you know, quite fundamental difficult issues so none of this will happen quickly but certainly there's no reason that i can see why all of these recommendations should not be implemented within a decade I mean, a decade can appear quite a long time. It's actually quite a short time in legislative sense. I mean, about half of these recommendations require legislation, and that, you know, takes, you know, 18 to two years to get through. Parliament requires quite a bit of discussion beforehand. But certainly, um, I would be looking at at a decade. There's really no reason why that shouldn't happen. And I think from the feedback I have from the discussion I've had with politicians, the Conservatives are, are resistant and they've always been resistant and that's that's fine and fair enough. But the Labour Party, the SNP and the Greens all came out basically supporting the thrust of these recommendations. Interestingly enough, the one party that hasn't said anything to date are the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, I'm, quite, I'm quite confident. Finally, If there's one system of land tenure in Scotland that's already been heavily legislated for, it's crofting, but the results are confusing and difficult to understand. The Land Reform Report recommends the development of a modern statutory framework for crofting. I asked Ailey Ross of Inkster Solicitors to explain what this might mean. First of all, though, I asked her why we have crofting tenure at all. If crofting tenure was created as a as a reaction to 19th century uh, injustices and, and things that happened, why do we still persist with crofting tenure in the 21st century? The modern uh, rationale for it seems to be population retention. That seems to be what it's all about. It's, it's generally accepted, I think, now that crofting law has assisted uh, communities in 
I hate to use the word remote because everywhere, I mean, London is remote from Sky, as Sky is remote from London, but um, but certainly uh, remote communities uh, to most people uh, in the country uh, are the crofting counties, and um, and there's no doubt I don't think that crofting has the crofting legal system, agricultural system has assisted communities and families to stay in those areas and. And really, you know, that, that is the, the modern day rationale for it. I mean, as a crofter, you get advantages and you get financial assistance to build a house and to put up agricultural buildings and to fence your croft and to reseed it and to drain it, etc., etc. And in, in exchange for, for those benefits, um, you have regu- regulated land. It's not the same as having non-croft land. There are controls over what you're allowed to do with it. Um, and and that's the, the balance of it, I suppose. And... and um, you know, the, the, that's really the way that the system um, is, is operated. Not everyone is uh, a tenant crofter in crofting communities. And I suppose you could say that, s- that the people who aren't tenant crofters are in some ways disengaged from some of the things you've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that a fair point? I think it is, yeah. I mean, that there, in my experience, there is um, a, a rub. Um, there is a bit of tension in some cases between the crofters and the wider community. And, and that's actually just human nature. That's, that happens when interests conflict. Um, and crofters, uh, you know, a crofter's interest might be something and, and might be that the rest of the community, you know, and the rest of the community might be thinking, well, actually, why should the crofters get all of the financial assistance to, to be, um, you know, in, in these places? Why why can I not get a grant to build a shed on my non-croft land or build a polytunnel in, in my non-croft large garden um, or whatever? So, I mean, that there is there is a bit of a rub there, actually, in some situations, yeah. yes. The Land Reform Review Group recommended a simplified legislative framework for crofting. What might that involve? Because that seems pretty open-ended. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, um, hallelujah, thankfully, they've said that. It's been going on and on and on. And I actually said in in January um, 2013, in my response to the Land Reform Review Group consultation, um, my view at that point was that there was no appetite for reform of crofting. Well, we'd, we'd all had enough. Nobody could keep track of what was happening. What reforms would you like to see? It's not so much, it's actually a restating of of crofting law. But the call at the moment is to say, okay, well, if this is what you want to do uh, with crofting law, this is the purpose of it. The current legislative framework fails in almost countless ways. It is a mess. It's a shambles. And if you want the acts to do what they are supposed to do, you're going to need to restate them um, and restate them properly and uh, simplify them in, in bits, but not change the actual character of it, um, but just tidy it up. What things need tidied up yeah. or restated? Okay, I mean, the, 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 the big one really to my mind, um, and the one that is causing most problems for people, um, for you know, people buying and selling crofts, um, is the definition of owner-occupier crofter, and it's a huge issue. Um, until 1976, you only had one type of crofter. He was a tenant crofter. Um, and uh, a, a crofter is defined, was defined, still is, as the tenant of a croft. In 1976, the law, um, as is well documented, uh, allowed crofters the right to purchase their croft land um, in almost all circumstances, not quite all, but, but almost all circumstances. A crofter was no longer a tenant because he, he had bought his landlord's interest, so you can't be a, a landlord and a tenant. Um, 
so what was this new crofter? Now, for, for years, really, since 1976, in fact, a crofter in such circumstances has been referred to as an owner-occupier. But that term was never defined in law. Unfortunately, the definition that uh, has, has found its way into the, the Act, by virtue of the 2010 Crofting Reform Act, it, it, it discounts many people. It says that in order to be an owner-occupier crofter, you have to own a croft. Now, that means if you only own 90% of a croft, which means that you only own part of a croft, you cannot be an owner-occupier crofter. You know, if you imagine a croft as a set entity and the boundaries of that entity can only alter by resumption or decrofting, and if as a crofter I only buy, you know, 90% of that ground, there's a little corner that I think oh, it doesn't matter, um, or I've sold it off to somebody else um, in the intervening period and I haven't decrofted or resumed it first, that means that I am I can never be an owner-occupier crofter. It means that you are neither fish nor fowl. You've you've taken yourself out of the category of being a tenant crofter, but you haven't managed to put yourself into the category of being an owner-occupier crofter as now defined. And what what's happening there is um, that uh, you, you know you've had people, and I've had countless conveyancing transactions which you know should have been perfectly straightforward, but actually what's happened is um, that the seller have. Um, found out during the conveyancing process, or, or I find out actually, and um, whether I'm acting for the buyers uh, or, or the or the sellers, um, you look at the title deeds and you see actually that there has been ground uh, conveyed off in the past without having been decrofted beforehand, and then you know you're faced with imparting the fairly um, uh, bad news that in fact they're, they're not owner occupier crofters. The other yeah. the other specific. Um, problem with the definition of owner-occupier crofters, and, and it has many manifestations, but these are just two, um, is that uh, since 2007, it's been possible to create new crofts. But if you create a new croft, you cannot fulfil the definition of owner-occupier owner crofter if you have a new croft. You've got to do a sort of very convoluted process of um, uh, buying it and then reletting it and et cetera, et cetera. It's a very, you've got to go around all the houses in order to artificially create um, this definition that you can fit yourself into. Um, so on the one hand, the 20, uh, 2007 Act um, allowed new crofters in, but the 2010 Act said, well, actually, yes, but you, you're not really going to be a proper crofter. You're going to be this neither fish nor fowl thing. Um, and actually, you know, why do these people want to become crofters in the first place? It's because there's agricultural grants available, and that's a perfectly legitimate reason for wanting to become a crofter. Um, yet, by doing so, and they will have incurred expense in doing so, um, they, they find that they, they get to the, the, the door to go into the, the world of crofting and, and it's not what they thought it was going to be. It hasn't been properly drafted, actually, I, I think is the problem. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, with the sort of, as the, um, I suppose, the, the drafting experience of the, the Scottish Parliament um, increases, um, you know, hopefully that won't happen next time. And, and, and it might Actually, you know, rather than rushing on with things and, and sort of saying, my goodness, we've got to do this, you know, in the shortest possible time, take a bit of time over it, be a bit more considered about it. We'll leave the final word to Andy Whiteman, who sums up the modern, progressive and long overdue recommendations in the Land Reform Review Group's report. This has been an opportunity to sort of revisit what land reform is, what it means um, and what the issues are in the broadest sense you know, right across Scotland, urban, rural, marine. Um, and so they've had the time to, to, to think about that. And that's why it's got more of a kind of fundamental feel to it and has come up with a range of recommendations that um, will take time to implement, but 
if and when they are, will set Scotland on a new, far more modern um, framework uh, of, of, of law regarding land um, and one that will hopefully deliver far more in the way of the, the, the public interest and, and importantly will democratise and give many more people in Scotland much greater say in how land is, is used and managed right across the countryside, but also have a, you know, many more opportunities to have a many, many more people to have a real stake and, and, and own land, have many, many more landowners, individuals uh, uh, and communities.